0: welcome to wild and exposed your number one adventure nature and outdoor photography podcast wild and exposed is hosted by mike Morrow, ron hayes jason loftus and mark raycroft thanks for tuning in welcome what you can't talk in the middle of my intro
1: (laughs) so far so good guys nice (laughs)
2: I'm going to keep this in there.
0: (laughs) Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed Podcast. We've got two guests. Well, actually, one guest host. And then we're welcoming back Isaac Spots for another episode. We are going to bring you something new tonight. It's going to be a a pro tip episode eventually. But before we do that, we're starting a... uh, a segment with Drew Hamilton from discover Churchill and Drew's been on with us several times. Uh, Everybody knows Drew at this point. We're having Drew Hamilton come on and he's going to host trivia night for wild and exposed podcast. Isaac's the guest. We need to round it out with, uh, with four people guessing. So, you know, at least we'll have somebody else we can throw under the bus. If we know nothing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I came, up, I came up with these questions. I, I, really, I really hope they, uh, they spark some good conversation tonight. and Because uh, it is, you guys are uh, at, a, at a time zone advantage here. Since I'm coming to you from uh, Central <laughs> Time, Winnipeg, it's pushing, pushing 10 o'clock. Uh, <laughs> so we'll just see where the night takes us.
0: So hang on. Before you start, Mike, what are the, the categories for trivia?
1: So we're going to have
2: three categories. It's going to be photography. Wildlife and conservation. But we'll see if Drew actually Unless Drew did not follow
1: the guidelines. I will tell you, your categories are what I decide. (laughs) I'm a trivia master. And so so you are just darn lucky that I happen to pick the categories of wildlife, photography, and Mm -hmm. conservation for tonight's trivia questions. (laughs) Lucky. Lucky you. That worked out well. (laughs) (laughs) Funny how that worked out.
2: But before we get started. Uh, we talked to you not too long ago, Drew. What's been going on since that last conversation?
1: Oh, it's uh it's actually all the things we talked about in that episode are happening. Like we're we're uh we're in the, the midst of getting back up to Churchill to start our Aurora season. We got guests showing up and then we're we're rolling right into our uh our Borealis and Bear Cubs package. So we're gonna go see some some polar bear cubs coming out of the den and, and I mean it's just an exciting time. You know, most people think of that uh that fall polar bear season for Churchill but frankly we're rolling into my favorite time uh, Aurora season here is one of the reasons I came you know I when I was in Alaska I was you know driving six seven hours to go catch the Aurora and now everybody's texting me tonight they're texting me pictures they're taking with their phone out of their front porches in Churchill. So I'm, I'm having to watch on the explore.org webcam. You can tune in. They've got an aurora cam on there and it just, I don't know. It just hurts that I'm not, not there, but hopefully we'll be able to get there tomorrow. Uh, we're down in the big city cause my, my old dog needed some ACL surgery. So we got him all patched up and we'll get, he's going to be, uh, he's going to be a hundred percent just in time for swimming season, which of course starts in, in July.
2: When we, before we got on the podcast, you were talking about possibly, I I missed part of it. You were getting, you were going to try to go back yesterday, but you couldn't.
1: Yeah. So we, yeah, we rolled up to the airport, uh, this morning and they said, oh no, flight's canceled. So we ended up having a little scramble where we got, actually, we got a very cute Airbnb. So if anybody finds themselves in, in Winnipeg, I highly recommend, uh the airbnb at (laughs) 290 uh ferry street (laughs) it's close to food delivery uh they shovel the walks it's great yeah write that down uh it's a delightful three bedroom sleep six if you're friends
2: why did they cancel the flight was it bad weather or just plane down or what
1: uh there there is some weather going on up there right now um alex is here with me and he he was just doing the conversions the wind chill in the fahrenheit um just well yesterday i think it or a couple days ago it hit uh 71 below, below. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a dry cold yeah. it really you know <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> it makes all the difference right <laughs>
0: yeah no problem so i'll start
1: racking 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 my brains for for uh cold weather tips for uh for the the pro for the last of part of the last segment yeah
2: yeah
3: mm-hmm.
2: i uh Flew up to Alaska last night and they were talking about a KP six in Anchorage. What is that? Is that good?
1: So the KP index is basic functionally. It tells you how far north and south you can see the Aurora. And, uh, so like a KP six would be great in Anchorage. Like if you went up to Glen Alps or any of those secret spots that are not Glen Alps. (laughs) <laughs> you could have, you could have, uh, potentially gotten some, some really good shows and it works, uh, going North too. So I was at a conference in uh, a few years ago with a guy from, uh, way up North in Canada. He was from Greece Fjord and there was an Aurora show and he came out and watched it with me and he was just blown away. I said, don't you see this all the time? I said, no, I'm from too far North <laughs> to see the Northern lights. Oh. So that, that KP index tells you kind of how far off of center The aurora will be potentially visible so a kp6 would be good in anchorage or even further south than anchorage frankly um but in churchill we like ones and twos and so there are a lot of other things that go into the aurora um and not that a six would be bad in churchill we'll take it but honestly one of the best shows i've ever seen was a kp2 in churchill and you know, a lot of times, particularly because I did a lot of hunting uh, around Anchorage, where you tend to be looking, uh, you know, kind of down towards the horizon. Here, I'm pointing at the horizon like people are seeing me, but <laughs> that's for just for the YouTube viewers, um, uh, YouTube viewer, whoever that is. And, uh, <laughs> oh, ouch! But you, you you'd see him like down and out. No, everybody listens. It it comes automatically to my phone. I don't have to go on YouTube anymore. Uh, which, which uh, I got a different funny story about you guys, I'll tell you later. Um, but anyway, yeah, so you're looking kind of out at them. But what's great about Churchill and its location, and it really makes for some striking photos, is since it's located right under the aurora oval, which you can get, you know, auroras at ones and twos on that KP index, a lot of times you're looking straight up at them, or with your foreground element, you can have the aurora, like even if you've got it. Kind of small foreground, the aurora will fill the frame, all the way up, and so it's just it's it's a different angle, but it's an important angle. Photography is all about angles and and light, and it's no different in in aurora photography. So we're rolling into aurora season here. We got our photography packages and things like that uh, starting up next week. So we'll be uh, we'll be talking a lot about that in the field, I'd imagine.
2: One more awesome. question on the KP thing is that
1: I'm asking the questions tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Does it go,
2: what's the number? So does it go KP one to KP 20 or is it
1: 10 or? Oh, what that would it? be, that would be too nice and round. No, it goes one to nine. Ah. Cause you know, that makes sense. So a nine <laughs> is not that great. No, a nine. Is it, th- it is. If you're, you're in
0: show. Wyoming, if you're yeah, in Wyoming, yeah. nine is awesome because we can actually see it's it
2: further north. And so
0: you can't because you live yeah. around too many city lights, but. We can right. see it
1: well, and then <laughs> then you get some potentially big events. Like you think back to the uh, this is before my time, uh, but uh, the Carrington event of 1859. You know, there there were it was observed in Puerto Rico.
3: Wow,
2: what? really?
1: I don't even know what that would be. Yeah, yeah, Puerto so Rico. That'd be like a 27 <laughs> Off the charts! Off the charts! <laughs> <laughs> huh. uh, and then, you know, there, there are other notable events, like the 1989 Quebec blackout. Uh, you know, anytime you've got Aurora going and it messes with your magnetic field, if you have wires that run through that field, it will produce electricity. And so that's what messed up the, the power grid in Quebec in 1989. It was a huge blackout. If you think Crazy. of big wires that run under the Aurora oval, um, it, it's not technically a wire, but it functions like a wire. You think of the Alaska pipeline that runs right under the aurora oval. Well, it's a big wire, full of oil. You don't want it producing electric current as well. So the the Alaska pipeline's actually aurora-proofed. And mm-hmm. what is that, just like isolated or what? I, it's above my pay grade. I don't know what <laughs> they do specifically, but it's important. Yeah, that is a very no, it job. totally
2: makes sense. But you've got to wonder what they do to keep that. They up.
0: put rubber tires under all the pillars.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we have plenty of extra rubber tires. One of you know, everybody in Churchill wears a lot of hats, It's a small town. And so one of my jobs in Churchill is I am the trivia master or one of the trivia masters. We do rotate. And so um Every few weeks, it'll be my turn to come up with a round of trivia. We'll go over to the Legion and start asking questions. So this really, when you guys asked me to do this, this was right up my alley. And uh, so I was able to customize some questions specifically for you guys on specific topics. I I wish we'd have
0: known that before we asked you, to be honest.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I don't take joy in stumping people.
0: We need to to do like C-League type questions.
1: (laughs) <laughs> well so i think our format for tonight i've got your names written in a little uh thing here and i'm going to go through and i'm going to ask the question and have each of you give your answer independently so everybody is going to have to answer the question and then if right. you get it right i'm going just going to put a little tick next to your name and then we will see who is there a prize tonight is it just we playing for respect of our peers or what This with, uh, one is respect but I think yeah we want to
2: work it into some sort of We're going to work on some prizes
0: paid. but this is the kickoff but okay. this yeah. is going to
2: be
1: I'm a little worried about how dumb I'm going to You work. guys could See. give yourselves all wild and exposed hats. <laughs> yeah, how do I not have one of those yet?
3: Yeah, that's a good oh, point.
0: That's a good question. That. You need to talk to Mike about that.
1: I think we didn't Isaac a... has one. I didn't think we I'm going to have Ray a... go grab one from your house, Michael, so I can get one. I'm actually here in lost so I'll it? send you one. <laughs> okay. So where should we start? Uh, let's start with a, a photography question. And this is going to be true or false. True or false. Oh. Um, really? True or false. When shooting the northern lights in very cold temperatures, it is important to have a high-quality UV filter on the lens to prevent the lens from frosting up. Michael. Uh, false.
0: You got to say why. No, no, no. That's for what the makes discussion later.
1: Oh oh, 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 yeah, because okay. everybody's got to give I, their right. answer. and Then we'll go, we'll discuss. We'll discuss. Right. So Michael says false. Ron, what do you say?
0: I
3: say false.
1: Okay. Isaac? Also false. Jason?
3: I'm going to go with false, too.
1: Okay. Everybody, circle gets the square. That's a, that's a win for everybody. Woo-hoo. Oh, wow. So, well, you know, you probably get a lot of questions at the camera shop there about this, right, Isaac? Yeah, I get a few here and there. <laughs> well, it's interesting. It's uh, it's actually the e- one of the easiest ways to ruin a night of aurora shooting is to have a UV filter on. And I've, I've definitely had people do this, and we we do cover it in orientation. We talk about everybody take your your filters off if you happen to have them on there. But it's one of those situations where you're taking these pictures, you're excited. It's the heat of the moment, um, and then it looks great on the back of your camera. But then when you put them. On your computer, it's going to have these little concentric rings that go all the way through your image that you aren't necessarily going to pick up on. But I've had on multiple occasions people uh, loving what they're shooting out in the field. And then when we get back to look at it in Lightroom, the image the whole night has been potentially ruined by having a UV filter on there. Now, I can't explain – you know. maybe I'll stumble into the camera shop in Jackson one day and ask about lens coatings and and, and stuff like that and see what actually causes it. But in the meantime, everybody know that when you go out to shoot the aurora, take all your filters off if you have them on.
2: So Ron and I just did a podcast with uh, uh, Simone Dutremont. He is a a nighttime sky photographer and he started talking about all these color wavelengths and all this color and that's why – I was like, it's got to be messing with it, the Northern Lights, and it's that color thing. And he was the talking UV. about, what was it? Um, they so, take all sort of the filters sulfur. off. So they
0: could, helium. Or uh, Heli- hydrogen, sorry. The wavelength of hydrogen is present in some of these deep space objects. And it's some determinant. Yes, yeah. You had it right. Um, but the wavelength of hydrogen, and it's, it's some variation of hydrogen some isotope of hydrogen like hydrogen 12 say but the the filters in our camera don't allow you to capture that color so that's And I was going in a whole different direction. I just thought having a filter of any kind on the end of your camera is going to trap air between the lens and the filter (laughs) and cause problems when it's seventy-one below zero. But
1: well, however you got there, you got to the right answer. (laughs) I'll take it. (laughs) All right, I wanted to. I wanted to start you guys off on a. a, I thought you guys were all going to get that one, so I chose that one first. Now we're going to take it up a notch. Oh. Uh, we are going to go into the wildlife category.
0: You, uh, you went ahead and allowed us to build our confidence back up after you destroyed it, talking about our one YouTube follower.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, just wait. This one's going to be good. Okay. All right. So this one, I think, um, I think we might even have talked about this concept on a podcast I was on. I never remember what I say on these things. I, I tend to just black out. And, and I don't know what comes out of my mouth, but I'm pretty sure this would have come up. So this process caused by repeated benign interactions is defined as the reduction in intensity or duration of a response to a stimulus. And this is in the wildlife category. Hmm. <laughs> Shall yes. I read it again? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's I'll... a lot of words, a lot of words in that one. <laughs> This process on which we all rely for our photography is caused by repeated benign interactions. It's defined as the reduction in intensity or duration of a response to a stimulus. And it is probably the most misused term in relation to bears.
0: I'm probably underthinking this
1: one. Then you're I've, first, Ron. Go. I've got,
0: okay, habituation.
1: Okay. That's Ron's guess. Michael, <laughs> habituation for our YouTube viewer. Yep. There we it. go. All right. <laughs> that was my guess. Isaac?
4: I'll go with the same thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, Jason, what you going to do? What you going to do? Uh,
3: I wonder what I might say. <laughs>
1: Uh, I honestly,
3: honestly, I wouldn't have got that and I don't know, but I'm going to go with habituation because that sounds right. (laughs) Okay.
1: All right. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and put you all down for another little uh, tally mark here because you were all correct. You know, that was the
2: Polly Hessing uh, interview, right?
1: And we probably talked about it with Derek Stonarov too. Um, it's something that comes up quite frequently in the wildlife world. And I know it's something, you know, with all the, the work I do with, uh, brown bears and polar bears, uh, it's something that I rely on, you know, all the, all the bears I, I take people to see are habituated and why that's important and why it's, uh, important to understand the difference between how, how it frequently gets misused. And what made me think of this question is I was watching a YouTube video, uh, the other day and a guy was talking about how bears were habituated to human trash, which is not the right use of the word. And I've actually at bear conferences had professional biologists get up and use use it that way. And it's just not quite right. Like you can wrap your mind around, you know what they're talking about, but it's not technically correct. So what they're saying when they say something is habituated to human trash is that it has learned to ignore human trash. And so, like the bears and cat and that we, we go out and photograph, are habituated through a repeated benign interaction. They have lost their response, up to a point. You know, uh, you don't cross the lines and things like that. You you follow the rules, uh, but that's what allows us to get um, those really natural photographs of wildlife. Is that they are uh, they are able to put aside the fact that we are there and go about their business. Like we're not there, really. But so it's it's really something that can be used to our advantage.
2: If you go back and listen to Polly's interview or that podcast that Drew and I did with Polly, Polly, she said that the habituation exists between the bears as well, right? Because they feed in such close quarters. They've just learned that over the years, the food source is there. There's no reason to fight over it. They can all feed. And that becomes something that they're habituated to. And then- that just carries over almost to the human side of thing too. It's just another being there. And the bears are like, yeah, as long as that being isn't going to mess with my mojo or, or, uh, you know, get too close or get in the comfort zone that they're cool with it.
1: Like with these bears, I really think of it as three kinds of habituation that are going on. And so you've got, first off with the Alaska peninsula bears, we've got bear bear habituation. They're used to each other, right? So then that is not a far leap. From uh, bear human habituation, and that is them getting used to humans as long as we behave in in predictable benign ways. And then the third is whatever the last one I said, just the opposite. So human, (laughs) human. Did I mention it's late here? Yeah. Human bear habituation, and that's us getting over our preconceived notions of bears and what bears may or may not be, in order to behave in that predictable, benign way that the bears like. And so it's those three processes that make things like McNeil River or Brooks Falls or or Katmai or Lake Clark, whatever, wherever you're going to see bears in Alaska. um, It's that process, those three things working in concert to to make it successful and safe.
2: Yeah, and it doesn't exist in Yellowstone, for example. Right. It's
1: just different.
2: Well, you're right, it it is different.
1: So think about it from this perspective, if you, if those bears in Yellowstone don't have that initial bear bear habituation that gets them that far along the path, like, uh, for example, 399 is, we won't get into food conditioning or anything like that. But on some level, she is habituated to people behaving in a predictable way on the roads, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like that is habituation. But her tolerance is because she doesn't necessarily have that original bear bear habituation. That's why you just got to give, yes, she's a habituated bear, but she's habituated to having more space. So giving, giving bears more space is always a great option. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, you could write a whole book on this topic.
1: Let's have Polly Hesting do that. That was a fascinating episode. Oh, it's and one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs>
0: We're going to all have to write our answers down because Ron's not going to carry this thing for us.
3: <laughs> I knew that was coming.
1: <laughs> is that, do we want, do we want to switch it up halfway through? <laughs> all right. We're only, how many questions have I asked two? I got two for everybody. We're, yeah. we're only okay. two in. Okay. Well, so since that, since we related that last question to, uh, to bears, this one, you're not going to have to write down. Cause I don't think anybody's going to get it. This is a stumper. Um, so Along the bear lines, and Polly Hessing brings it up. So uh, McNeil River in Alaska is the largest congregation of brown bears anywhere on earth. What is the largest number of bears ever officially observed at McNeil River Falls at one time?
3: Everybody's got to write it down.
1: Write it down. Write it down.
3: Oh, I see Mike's competitive side coming out. (laughs)
1: I'm totally guessing.
3: So, whoever's closest without going over.
1: Oh, are we doing prices right rules? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> one bear, Bob.
0: <laughs> Can you repeat it, Drew, for Isaac?
1: Yes. What is the largest number of bears ever officially observed at McNeil River Falls at one time? I've got
2: in Wild We Trust the book over here. Can I go over there and consult that?
1: <laughs> Negative. You know what? I bet that's not in there.
2: I might not because be that it. was
1: after. Uh, was Larry there? Larry, I actually Larry was there for that, so he was, it might, it so might it might be, might be in there. Yeah, and so you guys care.
2: need to give me about a half an hour.
1: Page 315. <laughs> all, all right, right.
0: is there. your answer written down? Yes, all right, Drew, it's on you. Okay, no, no, Isaac, what's your guess?
2: Yeah, let's see what Isaac has.
1: My wild guess, because I have no clue, was seventy-one. Ooh, seventy-one not is not back. too shabby. That's not a pretty too good guess. Shabby. Yeah, okay. We'll put that we'll put that in there. Okay, Jason.
3: My guess was 125.
1: 125. Yep. Is uh, a, little a, little, but, uh, a little ambitious, but uh it's yeah, not out of the realm of possibility. <laughs> and and I'll 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 talk about that in a minute. <laughs> All right, Ron, what do you say?
0: Well, my favorite number is 44, but I know you guys have seen more than 50 there already. Just listen to your conversations. So I'm just going to add a one on the front of it, and I'm going to go 144. Whoa.
1: 144. Oh, uh, I thought you were going to say 441, but... Uh, no.
0: No, <laughs> okay. I'm not going to go that So
1: 144. Uh, that, interestingly, is, I think... The most number of bears observed over the course of a season, almost <laughs> right off. And
0: individual bears?
1: In individual bears over the course of the season, I think the record's still 144. Oh wow! So, so that's a that's an important number.
2: You nice are a cover. lucky dog, there, Ron. <laughs> nice
1: work. All right, Michael. What's you? What's your answer?
2: I did 78.
1: Oh, it's almost Look like at, I've said that on a podcast with you before. Yeah. Oh. You little cheater. All right, Michael. We'll I, you're let another close, little tick Isaac. Mark here for you. No, Isaac pulled that out of nowhere. That was pretty impressive. That was
2: very yeah, impressive. So, and you
0: know you know where 144 came from?
2: Doubling 77.
0: The Google. The <laughs> Google. Oh, did you Google that? You cheater. I saw you messing around with your phone.
1: <laughs> well so I carried you guys on
0: there. the first one, so yeah, that was the number of individuals. I just wrote down the first number that I saw. Oh from the go- <laughs>
1: That from is sly the Googling there. That's see on actual trivia night at the Legion in, in Churchill, we don't we don't put up with that.
0: You get the boot.
1: <laughs> you get the boot, and, and we already covered it. Seventy-one below out there, so you are screwed. Yeah, that's, <laughs> trouble.
0: that's trouble.
1: Well, so the reason I put this question in here is timeliness. Um, right now, um, I don't know when this is going to air. When 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 will this be on? Before the end uh, of February.
2: Yep. yep. No.
1: Okay. So yeah. So the reason i put this one in here is as a casual reminder to everybody that's interested in going to mcneil river that you can apply for permits until the end of february so you know i worked out at mcneil river for for a bunch of years uh six years i was out there and and michael mentioned in wild trust which is a great book about larry aumiller who was out there for 30 years great bear people out there tom griffin just some some really legendary bear guides have have gone through there. And if you would like to go to McNeil River, um, now is your time to apply. It's all done on a permit system, so you have to apply uh, through a lottery. Um, You get four days, you bring your own tent, you camp out, and every day they take uh, 10 people into the sanctuary to go watch bears. And it's really quite unique in that you've got a limited number of people who can go in there And, uh, it's, there's just something kind of magical about knowing that you're the only people in this, this really magnificent life-changing place. And if you're a a student of of bear behavior, um, you, you can learn more at at watching, watching bears at McNeil river with those high quality guides, uh, than you can in a lifetime of of some of them, because you have all these, these bears, I mean, like I said, 78 bears at one time, um. And they're all doing something different. So you're watching one bear's fishing over here, one bear's fighting over there. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's chaos, but it's, it's beautiful chaos. So for anybody that, that is interested in applying for McNeil River, go to, actually, Friends of McNeil River uh, website. You can click on the McNeil River link, and it'll talk you through the process there, process there. And there are some videos about what camp life is like and what you can expect and things like that. So for bear fans, it's a, it's a pilgrimage everybody should, should take at some point.
2: Drew, can you, when you apply for that, can you apply as a group or is that like if you wanted to go with another, like your partner or you wanted to go with like two or three people, or is it just you apply and you're the only one that gets to go if you're uh, selected?
1: You can have up to three names on your permit. And so you have to uh, know all the people that are going with you when you apply. So, cause these permits are not transferable. So there's no like black market for the, for the permits after they, you're not going to see the, see them popping up on Craigslist, like a Denali road lottery or something like that. Right. Uh, They're not transferable. (laughs) Um, It really, uh, it's, it's the whole summer. It's an 80 day season and it's divided into 24 day blocks. And so you give them your top few choices and then the computer goes through and Picks who goes where and whatnot, and you give them different preferences and things like that, and then it all it all shakes out. But for for folks that are looking for Alaska or looking for bears or looking for something different, uh, maybe a little less crowded, people who like camping, whatever, uh, put it on your list. I just wanted to give it a, a shout, and we, I know we've talked about it a bunch of times on the show, but it really is a a bit of a hidden gem what's different about it than other places is in the mandate it's managed by the alaska department of fish and game in the mandate in the charter that uh, that started the whole program in 1967 it says bears come first all other uses of this land are secondary so if the viewing program went away tomorrow it would they would still be in their their mandate because the bears come first
0: that's great mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so that puts Michael in the lead, you guys.
0: That does, and I'm hurt That's by that, <laughs> so give me another question.
1: <laughs> Mr. Google. That's why Mike said- <laughs> I put
0: I put my phone away. <laughs>
3: okay. That's why Mike said everybody <laughs> write a- it down, because he knew the answer. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly.
0: He already thought- had it. <laughs> Did you see the graphic design that went into that? <laughs> Yep. Hold that up again.
2: Yeah, hold on a sec. I got two of them. I did it twice. It's like
0: bubble letters like I you lost used to it. do when you were a kid. What was doing with that? He was just killing don't, time. Don't act like it's not laminated sitting there on your...
2: <laughs> oh, there it is. Yep. Look at that bad yep. boy. Look at that. <laughs> it's like a NASCAR... Look good on your- it's like a, a NASCAR number.
1: <laughs> That's going to look good on your fridge later. Yep. The first inaugural... Inaugural uh, question answered right. Okay, well let's get let's get back to some some questions here. Um, so let's go back to a, a photography question here and see uh, see what people have to say. And this is actually uh, two two and one, and you get a half a point. Is it, am I making this too complicated? Nope. No, no. Nope. You get a half a point for each correct answer. And we are going to write them down because we've had some shenanigans (laughs) already, (laughs) Ron. Yeah. So, are you guys ready? Ready. 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 The first – let's see. The first digital camera was developed by what company in what year? Oh. The first digital camera – was developed by what company in what year? Mm. Ron, what are you doing? I'm thinking. I'm staring down at my paper. Show us your hands.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Google. Google's thinking.
1: <laughs> Earlier, I thought he was taking selfies, but he was cheating.
3: <laughs> I have no
0: idea how many bears. Um, okay.
2: Wow. I've got my answer. Mine's a total guess.
0: Yeah, mine's a total
3: guess, too.
1: All right. Well, uh, Jason was the first in with that confident I've got it. So let's start with him.
3: <laughs> oh, I didn't say that. I just said I had my answer.
1: <laughs> it sounded good.
3: All right. So I said Olympus in 1996.
1: Okay. Isaac. Wild guess. Wild guess, but... Fuji 1990.
2: Fuji 1990.
1: Okay. Okay. Michael? I did
0: Kodak in 1977. Okay. okay. 77
1: for wow. digital? And...
0: You, well, huh? yeah, you were definitely the oldest in 77. Oh, <laughs> he went there. He went there. <laughs>
1: Uh, okay, since, Ron, I, I couldn't read that. I couldn't read that.
0: Oh, it was backwards. Sorry. It, was it just your search history? Sony in two thousand.
1: Sony in two thousand. Okay. Well, so I, I I didn't know this off the top of my head. I had I had to Google this myself. So the first actual digital still camera was developed by Eastman Kodak engineer Steve Sasson in nineteen seventy five. Holy
0: cow. Yeah. Now he's up one point.
1: So we'll give give Michael a half point for that.
0: Were you guys buddies? I had. (laughs) You just just couldn't remember what year he developed it or what?
1: (laughs) The 70s were a fuzzy time.
0: (laughs) I had one of the first Kodak
1: digital
2: cameras. That's the only reason I chose Kodak.
1: Well, it's kind of fascinating. It, it, it went on to say that he built a prototype, and it gives the patent number and everything, from a movie camera lens, a handful of Motorola parts, uh, 16 batteries, and some newly invented Fairchild CCD electronic sensors.
0: Okay, so he used Motorola parts, which were sold to Sony. <laughs> (laughs) that that olympus made can i get at least a quarter point out of that
3: (laughs) no no
1: no we we should be watching we should be taking points away all right michael gets a point five there yeah so which 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 prompted you know these questions all got my wheels turning and so i wanted to ask you guys like when what were the first digital cameras you guys used, or did did you start in film, or like what 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 were the what were your origins here?
0: Yes, started in film, not as early as Mike did, but I <laughs> I started in film and then uh, literally Minolta sold their mount, the E mount to Sony, and Minolta basically went out of business. Everything turned into Sony. So were you
2: using Minolta back then?
0: Yeah. My first camera was Minolta. It was cheap. And I had a 75 to 300 lens. That was my big wildlife kit. And it was (laughs) a very cheap setup. And then as soon as they sold the mount to Sony, the only reason I went to Sony right away is because my Minolta lenses worked on the Sony had the E-mount. So that is why I went there. And Ooh. then later switched to Canon because I got a great deal on a 100 to 400 and a a Canon 50D back in the day.
1: 50D. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: My first camera was a Kodak. Digital camera was a Kodak. And I was just, I've always been infatuated with the new latest and greatest. So it was just an early adopter kind of thing. And it was just fun. It wasn't high quality. They were really small megapixel cameras and, more like a point and shoot than anything, and it just worked. And that, but I was still shooting, you know, film for the quality stuff, and then digital for the fun stuff. And I, I, if I remember correctly, Kodak came out with a great big body, it was probably two times the size of a regular pro body as far as tall, and so it had the hard drive, I think, built in it. And it was a Kodak, but it had a Canon mount. And,
0: on it. Is that the one that had the giant disc that the three and a half inch floppy that went into it?
1: No, I don't think that one had that. But no, you had to throw the sheet over your head and then the, the fire went off for the flash. <laughs> I think that's what he's talking about. <laughs> so, so Isaac, what, what, what was, what was your digital, uh, epiphany or did, have you always been digital or? Yeah, I've
4: always been digital. I'm, I'm too much of a young buck, I suppose. Um, my first digital my grandma got for me when uh, when I was 10 it was just a small Canon point and shoot I don't even remember what it was but you know nothing too crazy and then when I was 13 I saved up my money from a theater gig I did and bought a D Nikon D3200 was my first like you know legit
1: camera And Jason where did, where did you start what was your, what was your
3: Well yeah so believe it or not I actually did start with film um when I was 8 years old my mom gave me one of those 24 exposure, you know, roll, 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 click, roll, 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 <laughs> disposable cameras. <laughs> um, yeah, no, just joking. But when I first got serious about photography, it was with, uh, with with digital. And that was probably in 2004. And I think my first body I bought was a D5000, Nikon. So.
1: Okay. So let me ask you this then. So we've got, you know, Jason, you, you were started – in digital but you did have a background in the <laughs> the Brownie <laughs> cams or whatever right. uh, and then Michael and Ron you guys started with film and Isaac you're you're a purely digital you're a product of the digital age right so one of the things i've been noticing lately is that you know people that have grown up in a completely digital environment i think have a certain um, advantage in the modern photography business, just in in ways of seeing things and editing things. And I was wondering in your perspective, if, if, if it comes back to, you know, people that started with film, you know, that's what, when you had film, that's what you had, like you had certain constraints and now all of a sudden those constraints are gone. A lot of, a lot of those constraints are gone. And I feel that there's a lot of potential, uh, you know, different creative ways of thinking like. And particularly you, Jason, like because you started getting big time with with digital, but you still had that, you know, the the constraint of that thirty five millimeter film maybe in the back of your head. Like, what do you, what does that? Am I on the right track with anything there?
2: I totally think so. Because you know you were so limited back in the film days. Is you, you know you had to have the light. You're shooting with such slow uh, ISOs and. And then you that carries over. And so to to see what you can do now, to be Isaac now, to start out with all this and the sky's the limit and that dynamic range that you can do anything with, I think it just – but I think it, you got to just evolve with it, right? That's going to be the – that's why I've always been that early adopter because you want to evolve with whatever you're doing if you're going to stay relevant.
4: No, yeah, I mean it's just totally different. I feel like now, you know, especially since – you know, I started off in digital, you know, you didn't have Lightroom and Photoshop and everything with the, with, in the film days. So I feel like, you know, being mostly digital, my brain is kind of thinking of how I'll process things too, you know, whereas it was totally different where you didn't even have that kind of, you know, mental space at all. I, I feel like back in the day you had to, had to kind of nail it right then and there.
1: Take it right the first time.
2: You know, one other thing that just came out of that Simone podcast that I was referencing earlier is he said something and it just stuck with me. But he said he was talking about taking lots of wildlife pictures and he's like, take them. They're free. And I'm like, you know, you're kind of right, because it is back in the day with film. You had 36 exposures and you had to buy the film and pay for that processing of each roll. So you're talking, I don't know, Remember, I don't remember what it was, 6 or $7 by the time you bought the film and the processing. So a big trip for me to Denali to photograph was a 100 rolls of film. So I had to come up with $700 plus pay for the trip. And so you coveted each one of those, you know, you'd have something hot going on in front of you, and you were maybe at like 24, you already shot 24 on the roll and you're like, do I waste that 12 pictures and put in a new roll? Or do I chance it and hope that these next 12 pictures are gonna get it? Whereas nowadays it's just, it's free, you just shoot.
4: Now people complain about that 20 frames a second is too slow.
2: <laughs> exactly. Right.
1: Yeah, well, and you're, you're also in control over more of the artistic process from snapping like just like Isaac was saying, that you are as you're taking the picture, you're already thinking about post processing as opposed to sending them off and having someone else functionally interpret your art.
0: Well, and so, the yeah. the way that Jason shoots, I mean, in using the light you were worried about just getting a proper exposure. You weren't worried about, you know, how can I darken those shadows? And, you know, just get the tips of those tines in the light, you know, there wasn't that flexibility or that, I don't even know what you'd call it, that opportunity necessarily back in the day. So digitally, you can do so much more and you can be so much more creative because you've got it right there at the, at your fingertips and you, you get a preview of it, right? When you shoot it, if you, if you want, you know. I instead tell people of,
2: that all the time. You know, look yeah, at the back of the camera.
0: Two weeks, three weeks before you get any feedback. Yep. <laughs> I used to think yeah. it took six months because my mom, my mom would take the film in, and I used to think it would take six months to process the film because, and then, and then when they moved, I found this drawer, and there's like sixty rolls of film in this drawer. <laughs> I'm lucky I ever got anything back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> was all your allowance going to uh, to film developing?
0: Yeah, actually. What <laughs> were well, you
3: going to you know, say, Jason? Yeah. I was just going to say, it's an interesting perspective Drew has, and, and I don't disagree, but there's a lot of times I've thought that it's somewhat of a disadvantage too, and I just guess it's perspective. But I think somebody that's grown up in film and his transition to digital has a couple things going for him. One is a is a real understanding about how cameras work and how light works and all, the, all that stuff works together. Um, and then also they have an appreciation for the, the value and the benefits of the things that we have now. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of newer photographers just get out there and start shooting and they take a lot of this stuff for granted, you know, and myself included. But. The handling of
2: light back in the film days – if you were proficient, you could have got that. But you had to know everything. You could have got your shot, Jason, back in the day. But you better knew that that was what you were after—not—not not just you know Happen being able stance, to look yeah. at the well, not even have a stance. But you're able to look at the back of your camera and say, "Yeah, I got it." Or "No, I need to adjust this." And you can do it in a matter of seconds if you know what you're doing.
3: Right. right. But
2: back then, you just had to get it, or you know, and you just waited to figure out if you did get it. The other bad thing about the film days there was a disadvantage is you could push film. You could push it or pull it. So if you were shooting a fifty ISO film, you could push it to a hundred. But then you had to mark it and keep track of that and then make sure that the lab was gonna push process that film to get it into a certain so that, you know, and if you mixed up rolls, you'd screw it up, or if you if you shot half the roll and then something really good happened, then you pushed half of the roll, you had to They got to go in and cut. uh, It's just too much to talk about.
1: You know, guiding trips since, I don't know, whenever, I don't know, 99, whenever I started doing this and watching the transition. And it was really finally, from film to digital, it was really finally just maybe five or six years ago where I wouldn't see any film cameras at all. Like there was usually like one person that would
0: the hold out,
1: bring the film, I would call it nostalgia, call it whatever. That's what they knew. They, there was always one and you could always pick them out. Cause you'd have everybody lined up, taking a picture of a bear or whatnot. And then you'd hear that, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, you know, flip, flipping the flipping. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that's going to go. And, and everybody would kind of stop and be like, Whoa. Oh. But, but now I do think analogs coming back into fashion at, uh, at some point, I, I it came back. And so I've got a guy that's coming out uh, this next summer that we're going to be shooting. Or he's going to be shooting some some film, hopefully be able to do some cool double exposures and, and things like that. And it's really kind of a, a retro feel. So we'll see uh, see how that turns what
2: out. What did you start out with, Drew?
1: I started out uh, with my... I had all sorts of versions of like the little... Like Jason was talking about. Uh, but then... My parents were in the newspaper business. And so I had free run of the darkroom at the, the newspaper when I was relatively young. And so then my mom gave me her uh, AE1 with a 50 millimeter go have fun kind of lens. And so I could go, you know, I had access to all this and I could develop them myself, which was which was a ton of fun. I could go in there and dodge and burn to my, to my heart's content, can still conjure the the smells <laughs> associated with it. So, you know, I started out with film and then the first digital, like digital camera I bought was a Canon A720, I think. That was just one of those that had a flip screen and stuff. it was so much fun. And, um, and then the first like DLSR, DSL, it's late here, <laughs> um, was the 40D. And I think I got that in uh, uh, 2008, I think, and that was the first like fancy cam, we'll call it. And so, and still, I just actually I just posted a picture a couple days ago of, that I took on that camera. And I'm like, damn, that was a that was a fun a fun rig. But what we got what got me thinking about this whole film versus like where people started out was a few years ago. I was here in Churchill and doing a polar bear trip, and we had this beautiful polar bear in in sidelight and, and i was telling people how to like darken down and shadows and channel your inner jason loftus <laughs> kind of thing and uh and one of the guys said well why don't you just do that and post and and it just kind of stopped me in my tracks and i think i actually resorted to the because I said so, (laughs) technique, (laughs) technique. but yeah, he did have a point. You can't, you do have that much control over your creative process. You could do that in post, but I'm still a big fan of of taking it right the first time.
3: Well, I'll say, Yeah. yeah, I'll say that in my experience, which is very limited, I probably shouldn't be the one talking about this, but I've learned that if you get it right in camera and create that in the camera, it always looks much more natural than when you try to do it after the fact, so. Exactly.
1: Thank you for justifying my... Uh, <laughs> I told you so. I told
3: you <laughs> right, so. exactly.
1: <laughs> because that is how you do it.
2: <laughs> if you haven't got a chance to ever develop a roll of film, like, a you know, black and white, get a film camera and shoot black and white and then go process it yourself, it is a ton of fun. It's like what you were saying, Drew. If, I mean, you could sit and dodge and burn and you could create... It's a Photoshop, a manual Photoshop. But you just kind of learn the whole thing and, it you know, that smells of it. When I, was a, when I first started out, I couldn't afford too much, so I'd turn my kitchen into a dark room, and I had to wait till nighttime, and then I'd cover all the windows and you'd have to have the water going, and it was a blast. I mean, I still have an enlarger if anybody wants one.:
1: <laughs> you, get, you get to put it in the van.
2: I, you a know a dark room in the yeah. back of the van. that would be cool. <laughs> Just sit out and camp and uh, process images. That would be a blast. You know where I got to do it. I, this is dragging on and on, but what my first job was with Mesa Verde National Park as a park ranger. And I worked as an interpretive park ranger, which I wasn't an interpreter, but it was the only job open. And so I was working in the museum and I saw that they had a dark room, but nobody ever used it. And when I talked to the the bosses, they were like, "Oh yeah, go ahead and use whatever you want and, you know, knock yourself out." And they had paper or uh, stacks and stacks of photographic paper and chemicals and all that stuff so i would just sit in the museum at night and just process the heck out of just uh mesa verde if anybody's been to mesa verde it's all the archaeological ruins and mesa um cliff dwellings and you could get it's a very cool spot yeah you could get some cool images in there
1: Oh my. Okay. So should we do it? Well, let's take a look at the standings or do, do you guys want it? Let's see. No, We've we know it. he's a
0: and point and a half ahead. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> my, my spreadsheet though. I've got a spreadsheet, and, uh, you know, formulas and stuff <laughs> yeah. like that. Um, well, anyway, so yeah, I think we all know who's in the lead by, by a whopping 1.5 points. But we do have um, two questions left, I believe. And so we're going to dive right into it. This takes us into the... Uh,
0: do we have final uh, Jeopardy after that?
1: I could probably <laughs> root around in my computer and find some more trivia questions here. I, if, if, if we want to keep it going, we can. But we do have pro tips and things like that two, to talk two about.
0: Two more is so. good, yeah.
1: Two more is good. Okay, so this is delving into the conservation uh, realm. Um, so this Canadian national park... Established in 1996, protects important denning habitat for the Western Hudson Bay population of polar bears.
0: You just freaking said this on the last
1: podcast. I know. Too, you I I, did say this on the last podcast, and I
0: cannot remember. <gasps>
1: yeah, show oh. us your hands, Ron.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: Oh, hey,
1: my phone. My that was phone. a pretty good Ron impression. That's what, my Siri woke so, up.
0: <laughs> so all, all I did last time was mute my mic, hey, Siri, and then hold it up to my headphones. So Drew was talking into it, and Drew was asking Siri the question.
1: <laughs> oh, dang, that is next level. <laughs> I should have been ordering stuff from Amazon.
0: Oh, on it. <laughs> I know where, I know where it is based on you guys' description, but I cannot remember the name.
1: This Canadian national park, established in 1996, protects important denning habitat for the Western Hudson Bay population of polar bears, which, of course, is near and dear to my heart because those are the polar bears that live in my backyard in Churchill. Is that park
2: part of where you guys are going on your? Uh... Yes,
1: that is where they're it going. Is. We are. Which we is are why they it, The park of I this name. I can't remember it. Yeah,
2: you got me. I'm gonna guess.
0: Yep. This is is gonna anybody be a, gonna
1: write anything down?
0: No, I got, I got nothing.
1: So what we can learn from this is that Ron doesn't listen to his own podcast.
0: <laughs> Mike edited. It well, here's the deal. And he doesn't listen either.
1: <laughs> yeah, I
2: edited the whole thing, and I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, <laughs> does uh, does anybody have a guess?
0: No. Oh man. But I just I just saw a video from there on Netflix yeah, tonight you know because is... they climbing out of the den, climbing on mom's back.
2: Does it yeah, start with an a? a? Yeah.
0: No. No, there's no does it start with an A? Does it start <laughs> with an A N? <laughs>
1: Could I buy a vowel? <laughs> Where is Mark Raycroft when you need him? Right, he would know this. That's he would right. not know. He would not. He know would that know that. this. He would know this. Um, well, so it's it's uh, the the name is actually the the Cree word for polar bear. Oh, that, doesn't help. Help. that didn't help. No, no. I'm sorry. No. Okay, my Cree. So we're talking a little rusty. <laughs> we are we're we're talking about Wapusk huh? National Park. Well, Pusk National Park. That was... <laughs>
0: you know, I uh, would not have gotten that.
1: No. No. Nope. It did it's have an A in well- it- Good job, Mike. It did. It did. No credit for that. No credit for that. Well... So I was going to talk about, you know, I just, I put this one in there because, you know, coming up next month, this is when the the polar bear cubs are going to be emerging from their dens. And so it's a a very important time to have protected areas like that, to protect those denning areas, especially in in populations like the Western Hudson Bay
0: I should have remembered this because I I went right up and told my wife, I want to go on this trip, but I have to do it this year because they may not get it next year. I don't know. And she said, no. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, well a- ask me ask me again in a month i think uh, i think I'm, we're heading out there you'll know about the time actually when this when this episode's airing i'll probably be out there uh looking for looking for the cubs so uh i'll have to report back and let you know how it went and
0: uh, uh oh i'm sure you yeah, so we us.
1: should probably we should probably just move on from this question Hold on, yeah probably, we better yeah. i got one <laughs> more question about deeper.
2: that though drew How long Uh do they use that denning area? Is that something where they'll hang out there for a month or will they hang out there for two weeks or when they come out, do they go back in and then leave or what's that? How's that go?
1: Every bear is different. And so it really, you know, these, these bears all have unique personalities. They all have unique ways of dealing with the the world. They make life and death decisions on a daily basis. Some of these moms are going to come out and, you know, these cubs, they're, they're born, in the dens they go this so this is their some of them will go straight out to the sea ice uh you know they're trying to get out on the sea ice before seal pupping uh you know in the spring because that's really the the time when these bears are going to put on the most fat is during seal pupping and it's basically think of these you know the the ice has a bunch of like fat mcnuggets just scattered (laughs) about so these bears can really uh yeah so a lot of these females you know they went into the den in the fall and they came off the ice last january so they haven't really eaten much of anything that's going to provide fat, which is what they need to, to get through since July. And so if they have two or three cubs, they're coming out there, they're 15 pounds-ish. I just use that number for math purposes, but they haven't eaten a real meal since the summer or end of the, you know, whenever the ice uh, uh, kicked them off and then they're just getting out there now or, or next month. Like it really is an impressive process. So when you, when you think about things on, on like how the ice regime is changing and things like that, that's where you're going to start to see stress because they're already going that long without, without eating. And so when a female body size or body mass reaches a certain threshold, uh, they just stop reproducing. So it's, it's really kind of an interesting time, um, to be able to see these cubs coming out and, and heading straight out for their first, uh first trip on the sea ice.
2: How far yeah. is that trek so, from from the Denning site to the sea ice? How far are they going?
1: Uh, it's gonna depend which route they take. It could be uh, 20, 30 miles. Well, not, not quite that far. Um, a lot of times they'll follow the rivers out. So it'll just be kind of like highways heading out there. Um, oh, but to go back to your original question, uh, some of the moms are gonna hang out inland for a little bit. Some of them are gonna head straight out. It really is up to whatever that mom feels this year or whatever she's done in the past that's worked. Um, so yeah, it, it's gonna vary bear to bear.
2: Huh? And then how many bears are denning? Can you just say it's between 10 and 25
1: or is it unknown? You know, I don't have, the, it's a number we could find out. Uh, we could call folks over at the park and they do uh, keep track of numbers like that. Um, I don't have any recent estimates. For
2: if that. you had to guess,
0: what would you guess?
1: Uh, more than one, <laughs>
0: 144.
1: <laughs> no, that's something I, I will look into and I'll, I'll report back. Cause I need to brush up on my, my polar bear denning facts before we go in there and start looking for it.
3: Yeah. I'd so, love to know that uh, just, just yeah. because, um, real, real quick. I was actually <laughs> going to guess Yuku Sixalik national park.
1: Oh, that's over around the corner, actually. Right. Yeah, right.
3: That's not the that's yeah.
1: not the Western
0: <laughs> population, Jason. That you just googled. That was a different one. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry.
3: <laughs> just trying some wrong tricks. No, but there there
1: are other there are other you know think of polar bear Provincial Park and uh, you know there there are other uh, protected areas that protect the denning habitats and things. That's like way that cool. Yeah. place, but this is this is the near and dear to my heart Western Hudson Bay bears. So they're just cuter. <laughs> no, they're all, they're, they're all white and fuzzy. Uh, okay, one more question. Nobody, there was no change on that, so uh, so Mike so, wins.
0: This is a we're drawn dead on this. Thing. Dead. No, it's, this one's worth this one's home. this we're is on a points. two pointer. yeah yes. let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Let's
1: do it. Oh, this this could put some of those Western State boys uh back in contention. <laughs> Boom, <laughs> shakalaka. I, I, I had you guys in mind when I crafted this question. All right, oh boy. And this is the last question. We're at two points. We're going to write our answers, write them down. Everybody, chuck your phone. (laughs) (laughs) Nice one. (laughs) Okay. In the United States, what government agency manages the most onshore public lands by acre? Like just as the units, it doesn't you just need to come up with the agency. Agency. What agency manages the most public lands? I got it. Ron's got a very confident look about him.
0: It may be wrong. It may be very misplaced confidence. It
1: doesn't doesn't matter if it's wrong. Just say it confidently. (laughs) That's how I've gotten this far. (laughs) Are you giving your answer to everybody else who's still writing? No,
0: they're done writing. Are, Are you he? done right? Except Isaac. I don't know. He's still staring down at his paper.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: now, is this, you said the contiguous 48, or is this every state? The
1: statistics I looked up included the entire United States.
0: That might change it.
1: No take backs or yeah, yeah, take backs? No. this is the first one we've done.
0: I'm going to.
3: Did you already well, say your answer? <laughs> yeah, but uh, but we'll
0: let... I was basing it on the, the lower 48.
3: Right, right. So, but what was your answer?
0: My <laughs> original answer was Bureau of Land Management.
3: That is your answer. You're done.
0: But <laughs> if we're talking about Alaska. Also, oh,
3: boy. Here we go. <laughs>
0: I'm gonna just switch it and say Department of Agriculture.
1: Oh, okay. No, that's <laughs> too broad. Got to take it down one step because uh, right, right. stick. you I'm know st- what? Though you know what? Never mind. I'll, I'll explain it after.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because one's Department of Interior, so I'm gonna stay with Bureau of Land Management, even though it's wrong.
1: Is everybody done writing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh. So, Michael, what did you write?
2: I said BLM.
1: Okay, Isaac? To avoid embarrassment, I put no idea. <laughs> okay. It was a two-pointer. Even, you got to
0: throw something down there.
1: Didn't even trust Ron on that. <laughs> Jason, what do you got? What do you got?
3: It's Forest backwards. Service. U.S. Forest Service.
1: U.S. Forest Service.
3: Okay. Yeah, I think you're right. I know I am. So,
1: <laughs> maybe according I'm confident. to Google, according to Google.
3: Uh, oh, you had to use have the Google on this one?
1: <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, let's see. The U.S. Forest Service in the Department of Agriculture manages 193 million acres, in the National Forest System. Okay, so that's 193. The uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the Department of Interior manages 89 million acres, uh, National Wildlife Refuge System. The National Park Service in the Department of Interior manages 80 million acres in the National Park System. And the Bureau of Land Management in the Department of the Interior manages 244 oh. million acres. Oh, man. Listen to that, cocky pants. <laughs> yeah, I know.
0: Huh? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been it was, great, except Mike got it right. As well, <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, no change in, in order there. So, you know, I, I, that is, you know, and it just, I was looking these up, and it was just fascinating, and it, it just, it really, it blew my mind to look at it in those numbers and just think how lucky we are to have public lands on that scale, like so many places where they they don't have that, or or, uh, they've lost that. Um, It's just, I wanted to throw that out there is something we should think about. And and it's a heritage we should we should really cherish uh, as and we're all public land users, we all take advantage of that. And so I just wanted Mm -hmm. to give a shout out to our, our public lands. And then on top, this is just federal. So on top of that, you have state parks, you have state refuge systems, you have um, municipal lands, um, you have different conservation areas. And so um, I just really, yeah, wanted to point out what a good thing going we have. Uh, even the McNeil River that we talked about, you know, that's managed by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. So, right. and I used to work for the, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game in their lands and refuges program. So it is something that, uh, that I enjoy talking up and bragging about, and it's something we need to uh, always be vigilant to, to protect.
0: All right, so...
2: That's 607 you, million acres yep. with just the BLM, the Forest Service, the Fish fish and Wildlife, and the Park Service. Yes.
3: That's huge.
2: Yeah.
3: You're probably pushing over a billion when you include all the other ones you mentioned. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah, because... Mm-hmm. Well, so those bigger... The, the, once you get to that point, it's hard to even comprehend. Right. Um, you know, and, and you think about... And, and some of those hidden gems, like there are state parks that... You know, not as many people go to
0: Custer, Custer State I, I, Park in South Dakota is huge. It's a it's a big park.
1: The, the The one in Alaska that always jumps out is you've got Denali National Park, which gets all the, the fame and fortune. Uh, but then right across the highway, you've got Denali State Park, mm-hmm. which is is fabulous as well. You know, and it's just doesn't get the just doesn't get the, the airtime.
2: And you that, got Wrangell St. Elias. Big cousin gets which
1: is Langston, huge Hawaii, yeah. isn't that
2: like 14 million acres by itself
1: they're big they're big Katmai's yeah they're, they're all big yeah what's what's yellowstone like two two, two million yep. Be, so Katmai, yeah. i think is four lake clark national park yep. yeah it's just it's an amazing amazing system and when you start to think about just how much is is there um yeah we're lucky it's great
3: yep <laughs>
0: All right, so we are at an hour and eight minutes, so quick pro tips, and let's yeah yeah we'll one just, pro tip. we won't make it quick. we won't limit it, but yeah one one each, yes yeah.
3: sir, but it, it can be, be
0: it can be gear, it can be
3: could be living food. in your truck, it, it can could be, be how to
0: <laughs> camp in your vehicle in the wintertime, right. that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yep. Any of that.
2: Wow. What are we going to do, Drew? I don't even know. Isaac is
3: either. Isaac's our guest. Oh, go ahead, Isaac.
4: What I tell people, especially getting into photography, um, especially wildlife photography is just to get out and shoot is is the main thing. Like you can't get, you know, you're not going to get any kind of photo just sitting on your couch, you know, thinking about, well, I'm not going to be able to, to do it right. Or I don't have the, the technical skills or whatever. Um, just get out. Um, just, being out in nature is what it's all about in the first place. And then um, just taking pictures to have fun and just, just getting out and getting experience in the field is, is, is what it's all about.
3: It's a good one. Amen. Well said.
0: Jason, go ahead.
3: All right. I'm going to take a page of Mike's book and do a gear one this time. Um, We've all talked about the heat system gloves that we all like the heat company gloves. Um, And they're great for like, you know, real cold situations, but sometimes when it's really cold, they're a little bit, or, when it's like midwinter conditions, it's not—it's a little bit too much sometimes. So I actually was—I've been looking for another pair of gloves that I could wear that are warm, that give me some functionality. And I found these. Um, um, uh, Kelly Elmer turned me on to them, but they're called Valorette, and it's the Markhoff Pro V3. Yeah, and I've seen these, those. You guys these sell those don't you,
4: Isaac? Yeah, yeah, we sell them here. I love them. I use a bunch of. I use a few of those. Yeah.
3: Do you? These things are amazing. They're comfortable. They've got the little um, finger that opens up, so you have access. And you know, it's funny as I thought that there's a zipper on the back, and I thought it was for a um, a hand warmer, but it's actually not. It's. I mean, it could it could serve as one, but it's actually for a, um, to hold some extra tools and extra memory cards and stuff. Yeah. But anyways, I am going to use them in the in a week and a half here, or in in, in the next week when I go. And uh, report back on them, but everybody I've heard talk about them, they just love them. So it's another good option. And will they activate your screen? No, you have to open the finger. Open They're a little the thicker. They're a little too thick oh. for that. Yeah,
1: so. that's what noses are for. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and you yep, get the, that's my touch screen. <laughs> then
1: you get the snot swipe.
4: <laughs> I have one more. If, if that's cool, I, I, I yeah that, yeah absolutely. And uh, I just learned myself that a lot of y'all listening could actually really really use this tip um, that I learned from Steve Perry, who does a lot of wildlife uh, YouTube, camera related YouTube videos. And I had no idea about this and it was kind of life changing for me is if you're photographing in the cold conditions and you're driving around in your car, which a lot of us do um, to find wildlife and you've got your camera in the heat with you, once you find something and leave the heat, for one, if you don't know about the heat distortion, uh, if you're shooting from inside of your car, you're not going to be able to get any sharp pictures because of the heat leaving the, the cold and the mixing of the air. Um, but if you're outside of your car and you're using a lens with a big lens hood, you're actually not going to be able to get sharp pictures for the first like 15 or 20 minutes. Cause there's actually still some warm air kind of sitting in the lens hood. And I didn't know this. So for the first like 15 or 20 minutes after you're outside of your car, I would just take the lens hood off because you're gonna be so frustrated with how, how soft your images are. And I, I just learned that and I was very frustrated with the same thing. Um, but after, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, uh, your lens is the same temperature as the outside air and it's not a problem. But until that, that heat that's kind of bowled up on the inside, you know, it's, uh, it'll, it'll frustrate you for sure. So that's, uh, that's something I just learned from Barry, which, which
1: I found very interesting. So so don't chuck your camera in the river in the first 15 minutes. Right.
0: (laughs) We just had actually today uh, a listener send that video link from Steve. And so, yeah, and and to go along with that, I do not turn the heat on in my car um, when I'm driving around the wintertime because you don't want your camera equipment to warm up, period, because when you get out, it causes all kinds of problems.
3: That's why I don't ride with Ron, by the way. Just I
0: I drive too slow is why he doesn't ride with Ron.
4: It's not his road trip mix. Yeah, Yeah, I mean I just ride a carriage.
0: I do it the old (laughs) (laughs)
3: fashioned That was a good Uh, one, Isaac.
0: Battery life is something that suffers in the wintertime. And so there's, you're always looking for ways, you know, a lot of us keep our batteries under like a interior pocket. So it's, it's closer to your body. So it stays a little bit warmer, but another option to that is uh, cold case gear makes a, it's, it's an insulated case. And they make these in particular for your cell phone, however, the smaller camera batteries fit you can fit three or four of them inside the cold case gear and it keeps your batteries warm as well as keeping you a little bit warmer inside so those because those batteries aren't directly you know in contact with you and they extend the life of your batteries when it's uh you know in extreme cold so i would strongly recommend you guys reach out to cold case gear you can find actually a link on our website correct mike
2: Oh yeah, it'll be on the show notes We've got page.
0: A, a link on there and in the show notes. And these cases are are not real big, not real expensive, but they will extend the life of your batteries in cold weather shooting. And you know we all use cell phones as a second camera now, anyway, especially to get a little video clip here and there. So they definitely extend the life of your cell phone uh, in that cold weather as well.
2: Drew, you need to start. Uh getting those and giving them to your clients because they'll love you for that. Yeah,
0: actually it would be well, a great actually, tool for you guys at 71 below zero.
1: <laughs> well, there there's cold and then there's cold. Right. And, uh, Alex and I have had a few nights uh, out there in those temperatures and, and things just don't work. Right. <laughs> <Hold> <laughs> the on. screens start going all wonky. What's, and, what's, what's and, uh,
2: cold and cold. What is your example of, Seventy one minus seventy
1: one is yeah. Uh, probably in the like fifty minus fifty wind chill, uh, is well. I mean, it's it's you you dress for it and you 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 pick your your spots and things like that and you try to manage in in different ways to, uh, and we've had all sorts of creative uh, solutions or creative attempts attempts at creative solutions. One time where we I uh, had a lady on a tour from Texas and it was one of those cold, it was probably minus 40 wind chill or so. And uh, so she'd been inside waiting for the Aurora uh, drinking wine and her solution was, and this could be my pro tip. This is great. So, you know, those adhesive uh, toe warmer pads. Yeah. You know, she was inside drinking wine and she was sticking those to her face.
0: Mark does that because too. they're adhesive, yeah.
1: right? Yeah. So he sticks, she was sticking them to her face. And then I come in and I say, okay, the aurora's out. Let's all go out and look. So everybody's, you know, putting my parkas. Is- this, that, and the other. And, and then she walks outside and I don't know, something about the cold and the glue or whatever. And they just go, <laughs> 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 fell off her face. But anyway, she, she still had a great time watching the Aurora. But uh, but my, my, my real pro tip is, was going to involve uh, battery rotation in cold weather. And so, you know, I, I, uh, I've I been shooting lately my Aurora with uh, an A7S two. I uh, haven't pulled the trigger on the three yet, but it is notorious for uh, poor battery life. And so I've actually got a multi-battery rotation. Uh, sometimes I'll have three, four, five batteries. Because um, I've been trying to do a lot of video uh, of the Aurora lately, um, which also sucks the juice. Shoes up and the so, batteries, yeah. Yeah, so I'll go through and I'll, I'll, I'll shoot a battery until it, it's done. Or right, it says it's done, and then I'll put it in an interior pocket, put another one in, and shoot that till it's done, and then put it in the, the warm up pocket, and then put a third one in. And then I've, I've kind of settled on three as the, the right rotation uh, for me, but sometimes if it's real cold, I'll do four, um, and then put that third battery in. And if you're keeping those, those batteries that have already been spent warm, by the time you finish that third battery, that first battery is going to be back to where it's usable, and you can stick that back in. Now, the tricky part about this is modern parkas have a lot of pockets, <laughs> and you've got a lot of layers. So you got to have a system before you go out to know which pocket has which battery. It's kind of like watching Michael uh, manage memory cards out in the field. You know, it's like, okay, this is going over here, this is going over here, that one over there, you know. Uh, But it is. It is important in keeping track and and having a plan before you go out because when you go out and that 40 below hits you right in the lungs, you're not going to want to have to come up with your system in the dark.
2: (laughs) Hey, before – that's a good tip, but when you were referencing shooting video of the Aurora – do you have like a go-to setting where you kind of start uh, for ISO on that particular camera, or a range that you would recommend people go to?
1: Well, so yeah, and really the the uh, the S models are the ones that, that really do it built, right, built for frankly. low light
0: with those smaller built sensors, built for and, that
1: low yeah. light, yeah. You know. Some of the others can do it, but it, there's there's a lot of noise and things like that. Ray and I were trying it with the R5. I, I never saw the finished product, uh, but he at least attempted it and definitely got something. But so uh, with my A7S II, I'm rolling with a 24 millimeter uh, Rokinon T15 uh, Cine lens, uh, which is kind of a hidden gem, really. Like it's a, it's a Cine lens, doesn't mean you can't take pictures with it um and so i'll usually start i put it on a tenth of a second you know and and like all the it, it, and that kind of, i feel like that gives it that buttery flowy Aurora there's a little more
2: kind of flow time lapse
1: well if you're uh like matching your frame rates and things like that it it's it's just not as buttery is the best yeah i get it Word I've come up for it. It makes it a little... A little bit of motion blur. Yeah, exactly. And which is Aurora is by nature, like you're looking at it, you're like, is that blurry? Is that me? I don't know. Um, So I'll shoot it at a tenth of a second and I will... uh, At T one 1.5 and then uh, usually between 16,000 and 25,000 ISO. Mm. Uh, And then... I'm, I'm a photo guy, right? I started with an AE-1. I'm not, I'm, not I'm not a big video editor or anything like that. So what I'll do is I'll put the file on my computer and then I will beam it to my phone and I will take the noise out on my iPhone 13 Pro. <laughs> just in the, Well, there's not that much noise to start with. It just takes like a little noise adjustment but it's just so much easier. Like I've never bothered to learn how to do it on my computer. It just is so easy on the phone. And really frankly, I'm using this for, for content on the that's, interwebs anyway. That's
0: where people are like, gonna watch it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Me. All I need to do is make it look good on a Pro Max phone. Uh it really works out great. Have you ever really tried good. Topaz um denoise on Aurora Shots? On Aurora Shots, yes, but not on I don't can you do video?
0: You can now. Yeah, you can. Okay. They've got can a now. Aurora's got a new video um new video software and Topaz it's does spec or Topaz. Aurora. <laughs> Topaz does, but uh it takes a long time, obviously, because you're you know, we just we were just talking to who was that, Jason?
3: Scott Keys. Oh geez, Scott Keys, that's right, yeah. Because
0: it it basically is building frames in between the frames. So it's not only using the AI, but it's building additional frames. So it it take it can take, you know, all night to do Well
1: and it's, this
3: treating, but it's treating it's treating too, right? Yeah. Treating or, the ones over there just, and building new ones.
1: Or you could just put it on your phone. <laughs> you on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wanna well, uh so
2: I have one more ahead, question. Bro. So if it was a A okay. seven S three, you say you're using A seven S two. Yeah. Is the A 7s S three good enough to cut that ISO in half or no?
1: Uh I I haven't you'd be at the same ISO but it'd be it.
0: you'd be at the same ISO but it'd be cleaner.
1: Oh. Maybe, maybe a
4: tad bit cleaner. A little bit,
1: yeah. If anybody wanted me to send or if anybody wanted to send me one <laughs> for me to <laughs> test that out, I would be more than happy. I can
0: tell you where there is one. Oh, you yeah. Have to,
2: oh yeah. You just have to locate. <laughs> you it. gotta go find it.
1: Is this like geocaching?
0: Nate wow. Luby, no, Nate Nate Luby, sent one up into the oh, aurora yeah. <laughs> on a weather balloon, and they got one. They got one back. It was a sponsored by Sony Trip. They launched this baby in a weather balloon. It was in a case, and one they got back. The other one got some wind drift, and they were not able to locate it.
2: And the balloon didn't pop, so the balloon. <laughs> and- Will pop right. when it gets to a certain elevation, and it didn't. The conditions this were just right didn't. where it just so kind of floated,
0: floated.
4: So, yeah, yeah. so E.T.'s got a badass new camera. <laughs> <laughs> got a
0: sweet low light camera. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, the other the other two lenses that I've had really good luck uh, doing video on that body with are their uh, the not the G Master, just the regular G twenty millimeter. How fast is that one, Isaac? You probably have it in the shop there. No, the twenty. Uh, it's uh, probably a one eight. Yeah. So that and then the, the and then their their what is it the new sixteen. Well, one four. So those are the other two lenses I've had really good luck. Uh, I just like how it looks. I like uh, um, the Sony's got a little weird color thing going on for me, so I usually uh, desaturate it a bit just to make it match with the ICs a little better, uh, rather than some of those neon things and stuff like that. But um, but yeah, that's the that's the that's my go to setup. And I really, for this pro tip, I was really only intending to talk about batteries. But uh.
0: that's all right. It was a pro tip, pro tip plus.
1: Well, and it
2: piggybacked right on Ron's perfectly because if you have the cold case pouches and then you get your system in your jackets with your batteries, I mean, that's an even better warm-up situation.
0: I wanted to add with those cold case gear cases, they're not just for winter use because they are waterproof and, and dustproof when you seal them up so you know if you're doing some uh night sky stuff in the summertime you can throw your filters in there take them out on your four-wheeler or whatever however you're getting around and you've got a dustproof case as well um, when you drop filters for the nighttime shots so they are multi-purpose Sweet. And I'm not talking about dropping your UV filter for the Aurora. I'm talking about <laughs> dropping your neutral density off because it's dark.
4: <laughs>
2: All right. About so you, I'm Mike? last. So last night I was flying up here to Alaska to do this shoot and I had to edit these podcasts, right? Cause I have to have enough podcasts to cover those days when I'm gone and I'm editing away on the plane and my battery starts to go and I'm like, Oh, no big deal. I'll plug it into the plane and away we go turns out that the whatever power requirements these newer laptops have that plane won't charge it there's not enough power to go through whatever and i'm not using anything fancy it's it's not the latest and greatest mac it's the one before that
4: m1 probably
2: no before that it's the one version before that whatever that was and it's just your typical little charger packet but it wouldn't charge and i'm like 95 percent done with this podcast and i'm I'm like, how the heck? I don't want to wait because I wanted to get it all prepared. I had a gold Zero battery in my bag, and I bought it for another shoot quite a while ago with the intentions of running a laptop, but we never tried it. I never thought it would work, or we didn't need to try it. So I pulled that out of my bag, and I plugged it in, and it sure enough, it, char- it charged the laptop. So I got about really? a 50% charge. I had to plug it in using USB-C and not USB, but it's the... I don't know, Goal Zero, and it's called the Sherpa 1000.
3: It's a small battery. That's Yeah, cool. it's
2: not that big, really. <laughs> like throw it out <laughs> in your
0: pocket.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like the iPhone 17 <laughs> <laughs> Pro Max. Go right, three battery
0: up. rotation, you're going to have to have a backpack with that bad boy.
1: <laughs>
2: well, I consider that small because my video batteries are bigger than that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but it was slick because I was able to plug it in and I got the, the podcast edited and it got me through. So, you know, if you're caught in some backcountry adventure and you got to try to download your stuff, then it's, <laughs> it's not going to carry you through a whole. It's not going to replace that battery, but it got it back. It got it to about 50%.
1: And apparently you can take them on airplanes.
2: If you're yeah. carrying it on, you can. You can't check it on, but you can carry it on and it was fine. So it was kind of a serendipity kind of thing to have it.
0: You just can't rub them together on the plane. Got to have them in separate (laughs) pockets.
1: (laughs) And just remember which pocket it's in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so gentlemen, uh, uh, as of now, I am going to go ahead and declare Michael Morrow our first wild and exposed trivia champion. Woohoo! And we'll have to decide whether these scores carry through the season. Is there going to be one? No, we're starting uh, grand over champion at the end. Or, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I,
0: except I doubled the answer. If we were, <laughs> yeah. if we were doing Digging a prices, hole. right. I was long gone. <laughs>
1: yeah. so. so congratulations. You've earned yourself a uh, wild and exposed ball cap and, uh,
2: well, thanks. Which, you could
1: just go take that out of your inventory. Which you're currently wearing. And
2: I got to tell you, Drew, <laughs> this has been a lot of fun, and I think it should be something we do uh, a lot because if you're into it, this was a blast, and it was a good yeah. way to learn a lot of stuff. I mean, and it's such varied sure. topics, so that was that was really cool, and good job on coming what up. I with I was those trying questions.
1: to give yeah. shout outs to timely lot. Uh, remember to apply for your McNeil lottery, and you
2: know. I'm glad you said that because I want to apply timely.
0: for
1: that, and mm-hmm. I would
2: have forgot. I forgot last year.
1: Yep, <laughs> and you got till the end of February.
0: Well, Quite honestly, do. I mean, Michael's lived enough more years than the rest of us that he ought to know more.
2: <laughs> 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 well, that—that's what threw me ahead was that Kodak answer. You guys are right. too, too young to remember Kodak, your
0: buddy that made that first camera.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah and you were like you were snickering at my 1977 i was actually i wasn't too I far thought off you're
0: way way premature but no <laughs> all right well. well thank you guys very much Thanks you all for listening to another episode of wild and exposed and if you would do us a favor give us some feedback on the uh the trivia format and if you learned something great if not Send Drew Hamilton some better questions (laughs) (laughs) or some different questions.
2: Oh, and one more thing before we go, we have a couple spots open on our fall bear trip, and Drew, I'm sure you have some spots open. Is there anything you want to throw out for some upcoming trips that you could uh, try to fill up?
1: Well, we've got uh, we've got spots for Aurora season still. Um, You know, it's pretty. uh, We've got a few different packages where you could either some include flights from Winnipeg, or if you're already in. Um, Winnipeg we just can get you up and uh, there there are flight schedules some include weekends and we've got a few different options for you um, just so you can decide what's what's right for you and then we're uh, we're gearing up we're going to be releasing our summer our summer schedules here soon for beluga whales and then of course our fall time where we've got the overlap where you've got the potential to see polar bears beluga whales uh, and northern lights all in the same trip basically so that's going to be coming out here soon so for those that want to check a bunch of stuff off your list all at one shot that's going to be the time frame for you and where do they go
2: to find that drew what's the best website
1: you can go to discoverchurchill.com
2: and then what's your instagram handle so do you have a link on your instagram like in your bio that takes into that site or how do you work yeah it?
1: actually you can go yeah my link uh, my little link up top will take you right there so my instagram handle is drew HH, and uh and it'll get you pretty much where you need to go Perfect. Hey, and I Isaac, have one more
2: thing. Go ahead.
0: Hang on real quick. Isaac, for you, where can people find your content, your uh, TikTok, your Instagram, and any web content that you have?
4: Yeah. Um, my Instagram is Isaac's Picks with a Z at the end. Um, uh, that's the same on TikTok as well. You can find me by, by typing that in on TikTok for those of y'all who have TikTok out there.
0: Obviously, obviously everybody's found you on TikTok.
4: Yeah, I guess man. And then uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. My website for prints and everything should be in my Instagram bio. So
2: spell Isaac for us because some people won't ha- won't get it. Get it.
4: Yeah, so it's I S A A C. Perfect. Perfect. Isaac's picks. Yep.
2: And the last thing we have is Precision Camera is doing a an offer for people that want to sell used gear. So if you're in the market to sell some used gear. Um, they're in the market to buy stuff, you know, with the supply things. You go to these stores nowadays and there's just not a lot of stuff on the shelves. So they're, they're chewing through a lot of used gear. So they're looking for more year, used gear. And if you go to their site, you can click on used gear and tell them what you got. Tell them what kind of condition you think it is. And then they will respond with what the price is based off that condition. So you kind of have an idea what you would get for it if you send it off to them. If you decide to send it off, they will evaluate it themselves and give it their rating, which most times he said was the rating that you would give it. And then they just send you a check in the mail, or you can use that money towards a new purchase of a new camera. So the way to get that is there's a, if you go to our show notes page, you'll see all these little screenshots of what you got to do, but there's a more info uh, section where you put in your gear information. And in that more info, just type in wild and exposed and you get an extra 10% on selling your gear. So it's a pretty good deal. And if you have just got a bunch of stuff and you want to just send it all to one place and be done with it, it, it might be a good option for you.
1: That sounds super handy.
2: Yeah. That's how I always sell all my gears. I just go to a camera shop and get get it sold, so that's what I'm gonna do with a bunch for these guys.
0: You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're
1: gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in town.
3: We'll go.